Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. I'm excited to welcome Dan Dix as our guest for today. Dan is a colleague of mine for the past 15-plus years at all four. Dan is our air quality modeling and monitoring tech team leader, so he's the perfect guest for the topic we're going to discuss today. Today, we're going to cover environmental justice as a broad topic We've covered it holistically on past episodes. We did an update a couple episodes ago about what the federal administration is doing broadly, activity, priorities, things like that. Today, we're going to dig into two sort of adjacent areas and in some ways directly related around environmental justice and talk a little bit about what the whole concept of EJ policy and what the whole concept of increased stakeholder involvement could mean and could look like on two different fronts. One of them is ambient monitoring and the technology that's becoming available. And another one is the concept of a cumulative risk assessment, which we've heard about in a couple of different instances. So we want to dig into those two different things with Dan. And Dan, like I said, has been doing modeling and ambient monitoring at all four for quite some time, and he's coming to you from Warren, Vermont today. Dan, anything else in the way of introduction you want to share with the audience? Yeah, like you said, Colin, I've been doing this now for 18 years, and I'm excited to see what's coming down the pipe there. I think we'll get into this, but a lot of the monitoring that I started with at the beginning of my career was these really big, robust, ambient monitoring stations with, with shelters. And there's been a, a lot of recent technology that has shrunk these into the size of, of your hand. So it's kind of cool to, to see some of that and see the ways folks are using that. Good evolution of it over the past couple of decades, for sure. So let's get into that topic in general on the ambient monitoring side. And this will tie back to stakeholder involvement and some EJ concepts. But on monitoring in general, the concept of monitors evolving and getting smaller and less expensive isn't necessarily brand new. This is something that's been going on for for some time now, EPA, six or seven years ago, had their next-gen compliance initiative right. that involved these types of monitors. But, Dan, could you speak a little bit to what is happening, what has been happening, and where we are in terms of the type of monitors that are available to just about anybody and talk about what they can measure, the size of them, the cost of them? What are some of those metrics now that we look at? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we're seeing, like you said, that the concept of smaller, low-cost sensor isn't anything that's new within the last year. Like you said, that that came out a number of years ago from EPA. But I think combined with a focus on environmental justice and just communities being able to understand how they're being impacted has driven the need for monitoring at a very local level. 
And what we have seen is these sensors have come down in cost so that anybody, you may, anybody could afford a $200 sensor is probably a good average cost for these low sensors that could measure PM10, PM2.5 as temperature. It has humidity. And I think it also kind of ties with other technology evolution that it's very simple to set up. It uses your home Wi-Fi. You, you set this thing up on the side of your house. You connect it to your Wi-Fi. You're done. At that point, you're off and you're collecting data. And then on top of that, all that data is being pushed to a website that the developers of these sensors are maintaining. So it's not just the sensor. It's also the the infrastructure that goes along with recording and pushing that data out for public consumption that has has gone a long way here. And during the Obama administration, and I expect we'll see things like this ramp up in the future as well, there was actually government-related grants that got put out to cities and municipalities that allowed them to set up a network of these monitors and crowdsource the data and get people experience and how to utilize them. So we've seen this come a long way. Dan, you mentioned easy to set up, use home Wi-Fi, put it on the side of your house and you got data running. You also mentioned the, you know, websites and places where that's going. Tell the audience a little bit about that. I know Purple Air is a venue that's that's growing and data is being added to it. Walk the audience through Purple Air and what it is and how it's used. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Purple Air is one of the leading companies out there. They're not the only one by any means, but Again, it's a it's a small sensor, size of of your fist that measures PM ten two five, connected to your Wi Fi device, and it's recording two minute average measurements that it then publishes on a website that you can go to, and see real time data from all these sensors that everybody has set up. On think about Google Earth, it's a Google Earth map you go to, and again, very simple. When you set that sensor up, it connects to your Wi-Fi. Your Wi-Fi has built-in information that geolocates where your device is at. Then these real-time concentrations are popping up on a website for public consumption. Not only real-time, but all the data is being archived as well. So I could go and look at real-time data. I could I could zero down to select a specific monitor at somebody's house, and I could collect and look at all the data ever recorded there. It's also I think interesting about the Purple Air site is they've combined their data with data that EPA in the states are recording at federal reference monitors. So a lot of the data that EPA is measuring at these bigger federal reference monitoring stations is also available real time on state agency websites, on EPA websites. Purple Air has basically gone into that system as well and has put that data on their map as well. So right away, you've got a map of all the purple air sensors, of all the state-run sensors, of, of EPA sensors from a, a lot of different networks that's there. It's simple to kind of see as well. I think that's the key thing too. They've, they've kept it simple. You know, it, it's color-coded. They're using the air quality index, which is EPA 
indexing of kind of good, bad, worse air quality. But then you can get in there and select to actually look at measured concentrations as well. So, Dan, you mentioned a couple of key distinctions there. I want to visit one of them first before we move on. Small sensors, affordable, accessible data that's laid out in a very easy to toggle, easy to consume kind of format, all that. However, you did mention one key thing, which is that these small sensors are not federal reference method monitors. So they're not monitors that can be used to directly assess compliance with a national ambient air quality standard like a federal reference monitor is used to do. That's right. What are some of the things that we've seen and heard about how some of these small sensors collect data and what you might expect to see from them in terms of fluctuation versus the information that you would get out of a co-located or closely located federal reference method monitor? Yep. Yeah, there's been a lot of research and evaluation of these new sensors. Obviously, the the manufacturers are looking to put out the, the most accurate sensor that they that they can however the way i always hear it referred to as the the federal reference monitors that's the gold standard like that's been vetted you know scientifically that they are accurate and meet certain you know data accuracy requirements what we're seeing is off the shelf these sensors you know are are pretty accurate but then after that you have you know, human interaction. There are sighting considerations that goes along with, you know, installing an ambient monitor that may not be clear to the to general public. So, so that's one right off the bat. It, they might not be sighted in a, in a location that's collecting valid data or might be influenced by, say, your, your dryer exhaust, for example. Um, that's one thing. Another interesting thing that I have seen to addressed an, another limitation of sensors and that is because they're small compact there really isn't a way to one calibrate them after you know the manufacturer has calibrated them at the site and or even you know evaluate them do a, a quality control flow check or a temperature check because they're they're small because they're compact uh, and even Purple Air, for example, in the instructions says to not, you know, take the thing apart and not to try to calibrate it. To account for that fact, in some of the, the community programs where the community has put out, you know, hundreds of these sensors at the block by block level, they're still relying on a federal reference monitor within that matrix or domain of Purple Air sensors to apply a correction factor. So, for example, we've got 100 pearl-barrel sensors in a community, and then daily they're collecting data and comparing it to that federal reference monitor, and they're applying a correction to it. So that's one of the ways that states and communities that are setting up larger networks are accounting for that. To account for some of the natural variability or maybe deterioration of data quality over right. time, there's still right. a check that needs to right. be done. 
That's exactly it. Yeah. On these. Okay. And so another thing that, you know, like I mentioned, you know, EPA and stakeholders have been evaluating these purple air sensors. They've, there's a program right now that EPA has set up that they have co-located purple air sensors with their federal reference sensors right now at monitoring stations across the country. I think what I've seen in reading some of those studies is these sensors, they're not the gold standard, so they function well and are accurate in a certain in certain ambient settings. For example, for, for PM 2.5, where they quote-unquote struggle or they don't you know stack up as well as a federal reference monitor is when I have a really high humidity level or I have high ambient temperatures. That's that's where I might see the data accuracy degraded a little bit as compared to a federal reference monitor that can better handle those ambient type of conditions. Got it. Dan, thinking about the environmental justice piece of this or the tie back into it, the whole concept or one of the primary concepts of environmental justice is you've got increased stakeholder involvement, increased public outreach in certain areas that are considered EJ areas. When you think about monitoring and small sensors, this could be one big piece of that increased stakeholder involvement, not necessarily just in EJ areas, but really in any area. So there's a lot of different things to think about. How might the general public, as a stakeholder in this process, how might they utilize the small sensor technology? What are the different situations that it might be utilized in? I just sort of go down a mental list and say, people might just have a general curiosity about the air quality at their homes. People might have a curiosity if they're located near a specific facility. What is the impact of air quality from that particular facility or from a roadway or any other source of emissions? There might be stakeholders that are getting involved in a permitting process for a new facility that might want to collect ambient data or for a facility that's expanding so that they can become more involved in that process. So there's a number of different, I think, avenues where the public can utilize this information to get involved. Dan, the ones that I mentioned, are there any other additions to that? And how might a facility that's going to be having some outreach to those stakeholders, what are some of the things a facility should be aware of? What are some of the things a facility might want to do proactively if they're entering a new permitting process where things like this might come up, where this monitoring information might be utilized? Yeah, great question, Colin. And I'll say... You know, I'm involved in a lot of permitting efforts that involve air quality modeling, which means I get in front of the public a fair amount and, you know, attend hearings that are associated with, with the permitting process. And I've been doing this for 18 years, but in the last couple years, I hear more and more public comments or just folks in the public have done exactly what you have said. Like I've set up a, you know, a sensor. And here's what the sensor is reading right now. What does that mean? And I think the way that I look at it is there's a very big just education piece associated with all of this, with collecting all of this massive amount of data. Because it's so easy to go out and set up the data, start collecting data, you have to then interpret it, understand it. So that's what I would say just to everybody for 
you know, a potential facility that has a, you know, a project down the pipe, you know, they can be collecting data themselves. They can be educating the public and assume that the public may already be collecting some data themselves. And that, that's that been the biggest thing for me is I view it as educating, educating, you know, those folks that take an interest in collecting data on what they're collecting and what it means and, and how it's impacting them. That makes a lot of sense, Dan. And yeah, I think understanding the type of monitors and things like that that folks have access to, which we've talked about mm-hmm. some of those today, understanding what those are, understanding how they might be utilized. And to your point, being able to then educate folks on what that information means and have a good understanding from a facility perspective of what some of the ambient measurements are. Mm-hmm. The better understanding that companies have of that, the better they'll be able to educate the general public, the more information can be exchanged during the permitting process, and the smoother that process will go. Because we know that these permitting exercises are going to just, they're going to involve a higher level of involvement from all of the stakeholders involved and a higher level of interaction than we've typically had in the past. And that's just how things are evolving. And you may get to this, but and it's in that evolving context is that with the current administration's focus on EJ and one of the pieces to that is, you know, understanding the impacts to those areas. And because of that, I've, Every day I feel like I see a new government organization that has some type of funding for some entity, either community level or just the general public to purchase these sensors. I mean, a great example is uh, Massachusetts, next state down from me, put out a a $200,000 grant for communities to install purple air sensors at at $200 a pop, you know. That's that's a thousand new purple air sensors that could be installed in, in Massachusetts in the next year. So from a facility perspective, look at the monitors that are available to the public. Look at the data that's been collected at those monitors. Look at the data nearby. Understand it. And then have an intentional conversation going into the next permit renewal, going into the next permitting project about how some of that data might be utilized and whether or not from a facility standpoint that maybe there should be involvement in collecting some federal reference method type of data that will help in that permitting process. I think those are the intentional conversations that can be happening now. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for part one of my conversation with Dan. Tune in next episode for part two. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.